I'm Luke. I'm John. This week we're fighting, having an affair and joining a cult. That sounds excellent, but let me grab some whiskey first. I'm not talking about us. Oh, you mean it's Soaps Week on Cracking TV. They spent their whole lives watching TV. Now they're sharing their opinions with you. Because now they want to have some fun. With a channel that is all brand new. Get comfy and without further ado. They'll choose the shows that you want to view. It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV. Luke and John Cracking TV. Welcome to Cracking TV. We're Luke and John and we're on a mission to create our dream TV schedule for our very own network, Cracking TV. Each episode, we'll look at a different type of show to fill a slot in the schedule, finding the ultimate programmes for the ultimate TV channel. We'll be taking it in turns to be the commissioner and the pitcher. The pitcher will bring a number of shows in the hope of scoring that big commission. However, the commissioner has already got a big classic show in mind. The pitcher desperately wants one of his shows to win to avoid the embarrassment of being thrown out of the commissioner's office. This week, I'm the commissioner. John, thanks for coming in. I've got a slot in need of some soap. You're looking for a British soap suitable for the primetime slot, so after the evening news, but before the sexy, sweary watershed. Soap operas have been around since the 1930s on American radio. They originally got their name from the shows being sponsored by soap manufacturers. I suppose they're melodramatic serials or stories that are intended to run forever. In America, they're usually about beautiful and glamorous people, but British soap is a tradition all of its own. It purports to be set in the real world with normal people facing everyday situations, but in fact, as we'll see, it's often extremely over the top. Never. Yep. So, where are you going first? I'm going to start big. My first pitch is Coronation Street. Good place to start. The world's longest running television soap opera. Wow. It was created by Tony Warren and produced by Granada for ITV since 1960. Granada, of course, being the very best of the ITV regions. Are you saying that because you're from the Granada region? Yeah, but without too much bias, because I'm from Liverpool and Granada really is very heavily Manchester-based, isn't it? Well, that's true. We don't need to get into a North v South. All, all I'll say is LWT was obviously the best. I mean, it was only on for two days a week. But think what they did in those two days. Anyway, we're talking about Coronation Street. Oh, yes. At first, it was heavily influenced by plays like Look Back in Anger and A Taste of Honey, Kitchen Sink Dramas featuring Angry Young Men, and Corrie's original Angry Young Man was Ken Barlow, played by Bill Roach, who is still in the role today. Yeah, it's hard to imagine Ken Barlow as a young man. Well, he's been in that same role for 62 years, but back then he was a student torn between his working class roots and his intellectual pretensions. Oh, so a bit like us on this podcast. <laughs> Corrie, right from the start, although I mentioned Ken Barlow, and he's probably the patron saint of the show, but the female characters have been the most important voices. I mean, that's where a lot of the comedies come from, and the back and forth, I guess. Exactly right. There's been a whole range of these strong female characters. Battleaxe, Ina Sharples, the feisty siren, Elsie Tanner, gossipy Hilda Ogden, and the formidable but vulnerable pub landlady, Bette Lynch. Right to the present day, where there are probably some strong female characters, but I wouldn't know because I haven't watched it for about 20 years. Yeah, this is going to be the thing, isn't it? When did we last watch any of these shows? Uh, we just have to pretend we're knowledgeable about the latest going on. There will have been a, a fight in the last few weeks. 
There'll have been a fight and a fire and an affair and an illegitimate child. Yeah. But with Corrie, although I haven't watched it for a couple of decades now, for the first half of my life, I don't think I missed a single episode. As a family viewing experience, it was a religious moment in our household. It was a gripping show for all the family. Yeah. It had some big, exciting storylines. I mean, not on the scale of some of the other shows that we're going to talk about, but I remember The Rover's Return being burnt down. I remember that very clearly. It's almost stuff of nightmares. Yeah, it was. Bet was trapped upstairs. I remember it was caused by Jack putting in the wrong rated fuse. Yeah, that's right. I think he was down in the cellar. And for many years, I fundamentally thought fuses were dangerous. Don't touch a fuse. It'll kill you. All that happened was he put in the wrong sized one. If he'd put in the right sized fuse, it would have been safe. There would have been no fire. (laughs) I think he was deliberately being lazy. I think he knew he didn't have the right fuse and he put the wrong one in anyway. Yeah. There was also Mike Baldwin having an affair with Deirdre Barlow. I mean, that was one of the longest running plots, wasn't it? That affair and then the will Ken and Deirdre get back together line. The repercussions of that storyline literally lasted for decades. And I think that's one of the amazing things about this sort of long form storytelling. Deirdre was married to Ken Barlow. She was going to leave Ken for Mike and then it all went wrong. There was a big will she won't she get back together with Ken. Eventually she did get back together with Ken, but that was a huge thing for ages afterwards. The sort of setup of the alpha male Mike Baldwin who owned the factory and was a kind of tough guy versus Ken who was variously an English teacher or a local newspaper journalist but was considered a bit nerdy. Yeah, a bit square. But the important thing was that in this tug of love, Ken had won and that Mike never stopped being in love with Deirdre and that bubbled under for decades as well. You know, could often not be directly referred to for years, but then just in a moment, in a a reaction or in something that he said, it would be revealed that he'd never got over this and that he always loved her even when he was with other women many, many years later. Yeah. The next thing that happened, of course, was Mike got married to Ken's daughter from Ken's previous marriage, Susan. So that kicked the whole thing off again. Every few years, you'd have either Ken or Mike punching the other one out. So there's this real simmering resentment between them, but then sometimes they'd have to ally on certain subjects. And that almost buddy movie style back and forth between the two of them, they hate each other, but there's this grudging respect. Yeah. That led right to the end when Mike was suffering, I think, from dementia. He'd wandered into Coronation Street in, in the cold in the middle of the night and it was Ken who held him then as Mike died in his arms. It was a very touching end to what was decades of storyline. Absolutely. And I suppose that was the only way it could end, really. Their fates were intertwined. They were meant to be together. Exactly right. And then there was Deirdre herself in one of the more lauded storylines where she was imprisoned after being implicated in a con man's schemes. Free the Weatherfield One made the House of Commons. That's right. I think Tony Blair got involved in it. He did. Because, you know, he didn't have anything important to do. (laughs) That's right. It was a different time then, wasn't it? Yeah. And there was also Richard Hillman, who was the street's own serial killer. My personal favourite storyline, though, featured the abusive love rat Alan Bradley being run over by a tram in Blackpool while trying to assault Rita Fairclough. Yes, I remember that very clearly, him getting run over by a tram. Just a brilliantly sort of surreal northern moment. I'm taking you back to Weatherfield now. Get in the car! All been looking for you, and I found you, and I'm taking you back now. Get in the car! Go back, you stupid bitch! Alan Bradley there sounding very menacing as he tries to push Rita into the car, uh, sounding just like Frank Sidebottom. <laughs> I found you and I'm putting you back in the car, taking you to Weatherfield. <laughs> you know I did. 
I really did. <laughs> An incredibly dramatic scene with car stunts and everything all very exciting and Hollywood by Coronation Street standards of the 1980s. That is the pinnacle, isn't it, in the 1980s? Rita dodging the tram and Alan getting it smack on the side. First of all, she dodges a car and then she dodges the tram and then Alan runs onto the track and we see his shoulder get hit by the tram. You know, a lot of stunt coordination's gone into that. I did wonder until I rewatched the clip, it sort of stuck with me, how do you actually get hit by a tram? Because they don't move that fast, really. I mean, I understand you get hit because you're standing in the way, obviously, but I suppose it hits him on the shoulder and then he gets run over by the wheels. Probably something like that. I don't think the actual biological reality of what happened to him was ever gruesomely revealed. We never got to see the uh, autopsy. (laughs) Sadly not. But even more important than these high drama moments was what you alluded to earlier, which was the gentle comedy of Coronation Street. I think that's its calling card. Just like you, we watched it as a family. It was always on. It was that gentle show with the humour, a very important part of the show. Yeah, Jack and Vera Duckworth, Stan and Hilda Ogden, Mavis Riley. Characters with a real spark to them and honestly, dialogue sometimes at its best. Worthy of Victoria Wood or maybe even approaching Alan Bennett. Yeah, very well crafted. And of course, uh, Les Dennis got an entire act out of Mavis Riley. He did, yeah, and he took the mickey out of that on extras with Ricky Gervais. What was that impression you used to do? Impressions, I did loads. What was it? Mavis Riley, Coronation Street. Do that? No, I'm not doing do it. No. Go on. I don't really know. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I know. It is good, yeah. Didn't he end up acting in Coronation Street himself? He did, playing Michael Rodwell. It all comes around. So I've got some examples of my favourite Corrie lines. Okay, go for it. This one's from Stan Ogden. I've never really cracked it. You see, you've got to have an idea like the apple fell on Shakespeare's head. Eureka, he said. <laughs> That's great. Or this one from Jack Duckworth. When I was his age, I had to beat them off with a stick. I didn't have a car. No, all I had was a rubber tyre I used to roll down the street. Eventually, I got a clapped-out old banger. Oh, not a car. Alvira I'm talking about. (laughs) It's a bit 70s club comedian. It is. It's not just about comedy. Here's a poignant line from Ina Sharples. Oh, yeah. When you're as old as I am and your whole world is beginning to crumble until there's absolutely nothing left, then you fight for what you still have, even if it's only a chair and a lot of old memories. That is very poignant, actually. Very poignant. And then one of my all-time favourites, this is Hilda Ogden. Do you really think I look smashing? I said sort of, no? Well, I feel smashing. <laughs> Don't you? I feel all right, that. Well, give us a kiss, then. Hey. You heard? Come on, you daft diaper. Tis the second honeymoon, you know, not the first. Although, as I remember, you wasn't all that backward at coming forward then. What's that lipstick taste of? Woman, Stanley. Woman. Woman. I just think that's excellent. The great Hilda Ogden, arguably the most popular Coronation Street character of all time. Well, she was just so iconic, wasn't she? With the rollers in all the time. You just instantly recognised her. Then there was her Muriel. Played by the great Jean Alexander, of course. She was in the soap from 1964 to 1987. Iconic looking, you're right, rollers in her hair all the time and a headscarf. She was a cleaner and a gossip and always knew what was going on around the street or tried to find out. She was nosy but hilarious and full of these sort of malapropisms, like she had the most absurd mural painted on her wall. I think it was a beach scene and, as you say, she always referred to it as a muriel. And, of course, she had flying ducks on the wall as well. Yes, but one of the the ducks pointing downwards, not sort of properly uh, in alignment. <laughs> yes. 
And her relationship with her husband, Stan, we heard a rare moment of tenderness between them there, but that was one of the original couples fighting all the time, tensions that were done in a comical way, which were such an important part of Coronation Street. We also saw it with Jack and Vera. But um, Hilda Ogden, I think if you were to hold a pole of the most popular TV characters of all time, not just soap opera characters of all time. Oh, she'd be near the top. She'd be near the top, yeah. Jean wanted to leave the soap, but when she left, the way it was so sudden and so final, you know, she went off to become a a cleaner for this chap she'd met in the country. Maybe she came back once for some special, but essentially she never came back. Which is quite unusual with iconic characters in soap, isn't it? But yeah, they gave her a big send-off. I remember she was singing in The Rover's Return, Wish Me Luck As You Wave Me Goodbye. Yes. I haven't looked these up subsequently. These are things that are ingrained in my memory to this day. Likewise, that is how well written, how memorable these scenes are. Yeah, we were just children. It's incredible, really. But yeah, they would use these characters and these great actors, but the writers would come up with these fantastic bits, like that woman Stanley clip that we just heard. Yeah. And that's what's amazing about soaps, really. I think no other art form is expected to churn out content at such a rate, and they don't always succeed in keeping the standards high, but at its best, it really is elevated to an art form. And for me, Corrie, at its absolute apex, is a part of the canon of English literature. Wow, what can I say to that? I think that's a very compelling case. Very compelling case. That's my pitch for the big daddy of the soaps, Coronation Street. So, what's your next pitch? I'm going to go for Yorkshire's finest, Emmerdale. Now, I haven't watched Emmerdale Farm in 35 years, so I don't really know what's happened. Right. Well, okay, there's a fair bit to bring you up to speed on. Okay. So, it's just celebrated its 50th anniversary, and compared to what you last saw when it was Emmerdale Farm, it's changed a lot. And I think this is probably the weirdest of the longest running British soaps. It was launched in 1972, originally as a daytime soap. And sort of as a TV version of The Archers. Yeah, pretty much a rip off of the BBC's long running radio soap, The Archers. On The Archers, you have to imagine someone sticking their hand up a cow's ass on Emmerdale, they show. In full technical, yeah. Nice. By 1977, it had been on air for five years and it had moved to prime time in most of the ITV regions, but it still had a reputation for being slow and gentle or boring, depending on your point of view. I can remember watching it as a kid in the early 80s and seeing these men with Old Testament names and a whole lamb hanging down from each side of the face. Yes. Talking slowly in the village poor borough at a dowdy kitchen table in the dark. So boring. And then it all changed. In 1989, it shortened its name to Emmerdale and it started to become a more sensationalist show. In 1994, they drafted in Phil Redmond, the creator of Brookside, to revamp it further, and he oversaw a storyline which we've got a bit of audio from. That's a plane crashing into the village. That episode got a record 18 million viewers. That's incredible. Not without controversy, of course. The episode was aired around the time of the anniversary of the Lockerbie Air disaster. Yeah, it's perhaps a bit much to put it on when they did. 
maybe a bit insensitive to the families. Here's a clip of Eamon Holmes giving his judgment on whether it was insensitive. I just feel for anyone who's lost anyone around Lockerbie, I yes. still think no. the timing is grossly insensitive. Um, I wouldn't mm. detract from the acting, the special no. effects or anything else, mm. but I do mm. think mm. it's a cynical, callous way of boosting ratings, and mm. I think that Yorkshire mm. Television will be judged accordingly by people. But such as television and such as life... Cynical and callous. But such is television. Such is television, says Eamon, as he signs off. I mean, it certainly did boost ratings. And that air crash plot was so big that Brookside referenced it when Mick Johnson was seen reading a newspaper with the front page headline, Air Disaster Toll Rises, Village Mourns as Many Die. So there's a crossover between the soaps. That was obviously a uh, knowing reference to the fact that it was Phil Redmond who had come up with this storyline. Of course. This thing of soaps crossing over with each other and whether they exist in the same universe drives me mad. Clearly, Emmerdale doesn't exist in the same universe as Brookside. They are entirely separate entities from each other. If they did exist in the same universe, it would create far too many contradictions. People in soaps, the characters, they're going to watch TV. It makes perfect sense that Doc Cotton would be somebody who watches Coronation Street. Absolutely. That's absolutely fine. As long as we establish that they exist in separate universes and therefore it's possible for them to watch each other. I can see this really bothers you. I think about these things too often, but I'll give you one example of it. Okay. I'm pretty sure I remember in the early days of Hollyoaks, somebody saying, oh, your mum wants to be home in time to watch Brookie or something like that, right? Yeah. Firmly establishing that within in the world of Hollyoaks, Brookside, it's a television programme that they watch. Yeah. But then there was the character of Matt Musgrove, I think his name was. Right. Brookside character, who then moved away and was in Hollyoaks, the same character. Right. So that suggests that they exist in a shared universe. But anyway, we digress magnificently from the Emmerdale air crash, which really did allow them to completely reinvent the soap. And I think at this point they said, well, let's stop it just being about a farm because that's one family on one farm and it's pretty limiting. If we make this about the whole village, then you have a whole range of possibilities. You've got a mansion house, you've got farms of various sizes, you've got poor areas, richer areas, and they've got this whole thing to play with, which gives you far more opportunities for plot. For sure, they can be more inventive. So after the plane crash, they also changed the name of the village. Previously, the name of the village was Beckendale, but they changed it to Emmerdale. So conveniently, the title of the show then made sense. Yeah. And they introduced new characters. One example was the Dingle family, which was made up of scammers and bare-knuckle boxers and all sorts of ne'er-do-wells. Basically gave them the opportunity to bring in some humour to Emmerdale, really, didn't it? Humorous characters, also an edge of darkness. Some of those characters were sort of pantomime villains. Yeah. But really what happened was the whole soap was elevated above the ordinary and into something verging on the magical realist sometimes. I'm going to give you an example of this. In 2015, there was a character called Val and she was, right, get this, she was trapped in a hall of mirrors when a helicopter crashed on the village. She was stuck in the mirrors and couldn't work out how to get out. Well, the helicopter exploded and the hall of mirrors collapsed and she was lying trapped and she could see this big shard of glass hanging above her. It was obviously going to fall on her and kill her. And so she calmly lit a cigarette and then she said to the shard of glass, go on, do your worst. I'm not frightened of you. And then she was killed and she later reappeared as a ghost in someone's dream. Yeah, I mean, that's a very realistic plot line, isn't it? How many people do you know who've been killed in a hall of mirrors after it gets destroyed by a helicopter? Yeah, not after a helicopter crash, sure. Because if it weren't for the helicopter crash, it would be completely realistic. An everyday occurrence? 
I think I would like British Soap to lean harder into that spooky, surreal territory. Things like The League of Gentlemen played for laughs. I always enjoy that when that comes into soap. Didn't they do a whole week where there was a road crash and they sort of told it through lots of flashbacks and did it sort of in a horror style, quite like The League of Gentlemen, maybe without the humour? Yeah, they mess around with the form sometimes in Emmerdale. What do you think about that? Do you think soaps have a duty to reflect real life or should they you know, exist in their own realities? I think it depends on, on the soap. I think some shows it absolutely makes sense that they exist in real life. But you don't want every show being the same. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the important thing is that they have a sort of set of internal rules, like its own consistency, and there's a physics and reality that exists in the world of that particular soap opera. Absolutely. So on Coronation Street, the law is that some love rat will always get their comeuppance. Any man who ever wears a suit will inevitably own the factory at some point. There's a law of physics around Terry Duckworth as well, which is very similar to that of Nick Cotton in EastEnders. They'll both turn up as reformed characters. Their mums will believe that they've changed and then they'll do something evil and let their mums down. Yeah. To bring it back to Emmerdale, it exists in a version of the countryside that probably has nothing whatsoever to do with real life, but it's consistent in its own terms. And the point of my pitch is that the scope of Emmerdale is massive because unlike other soaps, it's got a whole village to play with, not just a street or a close or a square. And it has the potential to do weird things that none of the other soaps would be able to do. I mean, you're not going to have that Hall of Mirrors incident on EastEnders, right? No, exactly right. Viewers of these soaps demand something that's consistent within that world. So you couldn't have that sort of semi-surreal, spooky thing happening to the same extent. Having said that, in Coronation Street, Vera's ghost appeared to Jack Duckworth just before he died. And I think EastEnders has had characters come back from the dead in visions in that sort of way as well. So the soaps are maybe all starting to walk into that slightly surreal space. We'll obviously talk about Neighbours another time, but there you had the ghost of Madge. And Bouncer's Dream. Bouncer's Dream, of course, classic. And in Dallas, there was the famous shower scene with it all being a dream. That seemed to go perhaps a little bit too far. Well, the Dallas one was cheating the audience, wasn't it? Because it was telling them that a whole season that they'd invested in had been a waste of their time. Treating the viewer with contempt. The other thing with dream sequences is once you show a viewer something and shock them and then say, no, that wasn't true. There's two problems with that. Number one, the shock itself was a cheat. And number two, the viewer doesn't know from then on whether to trust you when big things happen. Yeah, yeah. But my pitch for Emmerdale is that they can mess with the format. Well, you've certainly made me think about it in a new light, which might make a difference at the end. But now it's time for me to talk about the show I already have in mind for the slot, El Dorado. Wow, okay. How am I going to compete with the classic, long-running, much-loved and highly rated El Dorado? Well, I'm glad you realise you're in for tough competition. Okay, let's hear it. El Dorado launched in 1992 in place of Terry Wogan's chat show on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays in a bold attempt by the BBC to introduce a big new ratings winner. BBC One was down a bit in the ratings at the time relative to ITV and to justify the licence fee, they felt the need to introduce a bit of popularism in the form of a brand new soap opera. They asked for pitches, I'm sure in a format similar to this podcast, and the winner was a show called Little England, set in an expat community in Spain. Created by Tony Holland and produced by Julia Smith, the co-creators of EastEnders, it was about Brits abroad living in their own small community with a siege mentality. Renamed El Dorado, it became a classic of the genre and a show that is fondly remembered for its exciting plotlines, brilliant acting and for bringing the warmth of Costa del Spain to the British living room.
Right, so just in case any of our listeners don't remember El Dorado, clearly what you've said there is bollocks, right? This is one of the biggest disasters in the history of British broadcasting. It's commonly cited as the biggest mistake the BBC ever made. The show had a few issues. Just a few. Every show has teething troubles. It's a textbook example of TV gone wrong. I think part of the problem is the original concept got watered down. They got loads of notes from executives. Oh, you can't call it Little England. You're going to annoy BBC Scotland. Right. 1992, it's the year of closer European integration. You can't make it about Brits ignoring everyone else. You've got to introduce some other nationalities. So they'd ask for a Danish family one week, a German family the next, then a French family. And it is, of course, a very laudable idea that everyone gets along, but it was grafted onto an original idea, and with very little pre-production time, these changes were difficult to accommodate. Right, so it's not that you object to there being Danish people in the show per se. The original idea of the show was Little England, an expat community on the coast of Spain. Yeah, exactly right. And it's mainly the British characters, but with the non-Brits as well. And they decided to have everyone speak their own language. There you would be, 7 o'clock on BBC One. Suddenly, it would revert to German. It had subtitles? No, not subtitled at all. Oh, wow. So you could speak German, in which case you could follow what was going on, or you didn't speak German, in which case, what, you had to pick up context clues. Yeah, and often you'd have no idea, because while the idea is you pick up the context clues, the show was rushed to air, and so they didn't really have time to shoot things properly. If it was vaguely good enough in the first take, that was it. It was in the can. Wow, okay. And a lot of inexperienced actors were cast. You mean a lot of the acting was terrible? (laughs) Yes. But look, I'm the commissioner here, so you're probably thinking, why am I going to go for a show like this? I am wondering that, yes. Well, it's what it became after a few months. Right. They got a new exec, Corrine Hollingworth, who quickly dealt with the mess that had been created. She got rid of some of the bad actors, increased rehearsal time, and set to work improving the scripts. That must have been quite a job. Yeah, but the original scripts had some excellent pedigree in Tony Jordan, EastEnders' top scriptwriter, but his concepts had been watered down outside of his hands. The scriptwriters were all originally in London and detached from the production, but eventually they flew them out to Spain so they could react to what was being filmed. Right. And over time, they turned the ship around and started to produce a good show. How long did the show even last? It was only on for about a year, wasn't it? One year, one week. You're saying it started to get better, but they still cancelled it. So what was it that they just couldn't pick up viewers after that rocky start? Well, I think that's the thing. The first episode was up against a double episode of Corrie, but still did really well with more than 10 million viewers. Yeah, I watched that first episode. That episode ended with quite a creepy plotline, which won't have helped. There was this middle-aged character, Bunny. Oh yeah, I remember him. He was played by Roger Walker, who'd been in Rainbow. Before Rod, Jane and Freddy, there was Rod, Jane and Roger, and he was that Roger? Uh, He was that Roger. But building up through that first episode, the other characters were saying, oh, Bunny's coming home with his new wife, can't wait to see him again and meet her, let's give them a big party to celebrate. In the final scene, he's holding this massive rabbit in front of his wife. Oh, I see what they've done there. A massive bunny. And then he moves it away to reveal Fizz, who is basically 18 and less than half his age. Oh, wow. I remember there was an age difference, but I didn't remember that she was that young. And they had scenes where they kissed, scenes where it was implied, heavily implied, that they'd just come from having sex. And it was all a bit disgusting. 
Yeah, it does sound a bit dodgy. One of the things that the new producer did was get rid of those characters, as it just wasn't appropriate. After that first episode, the rating slumped down to the 5 million level, which just wasn't enough. So today, 5 million would be amazing, but in 1992, you'd be wanting twice that, wouldn't you? Yeah, and EastEnders at the time would have been getting on for 15 million. Ratings did increase with the improvements that were made, and they were getting close to what would be acceptable, but they ran out of road before they could improve further. Politics had come in. The controller of BBC One who had commissioned the show, Jonathan Powell, he left and was replaced by some bloke called Alan Yentob. His first big decision was what to do with El Dorado, and he decided to axe it. He thought that it wasn't just about the show, but that it's so big it's defining BBC One, and he decided it was damaging the channel, and so he got rid. Do you think if he hadn't made that decision, El Dorado could still be running today? Well, who knows? But maybe, if El Dorado was still running, Brexit wouldn't have happened. (laughs) Certainly, I think if they'd given it another year, it would have done well, and then they could have got another, say, ten years out of it. As it was, the last scene was bad boy Marcus Tandy and his girlfriend Pilar sailing off into the sunset. It was a big investment, as I recall. Didn't they spend quite a lot of money on launching it and producing it? It was widely reported that they spent £10 million on the set, but actually that was the production budget for the year, with the set itself costing £2 million. OK, so it wasn't actually super expensive, even by 1992 standards, for three episodes a week. No, but they'd had one of the biggest press launches ever, and that's part of the problem. When you come along and say, this is going to be the biggest show, everyone's going to love it, and then when it has growing pains, everyone is then going to jump on it. Yeah, of course. Do you think the whole thing of setting it in Spain and on the beach was a reaction to the popularity of the big Australian soaps of the time, Home and Away and Neighbours? I mean, it must have been. They had the beach and a set that easily rivaled Summer Bay and Ramsey Street. I don't actually remember the El Dorado set. It was a few villas around a circle with a pool in the middle and a little town square. After the show finished, they turned it into a hotel. And a bit after that, you could do paintballing around the El Dorado set. (laughs) That's brilliant. Paintballing in the El Dorado set sounds like an Alan Partridge pitch. Absolutely. But there you are, El Dorado, a show killed before its prime. Okay. But I'm ready for your next pitch. What have you got? I'm going to take you back in time a little bit to 1982 and the launch of Channel 4. Oh, so you're doing Countdown. That's not a soap. Well, on the same night, we saw the first episode of Brookside. Ah, your people. Yes, exactly. This was the brainchild of Phil Redmond, Liverpool native, but he'd already created Grange Hill for the BBC, and now he was making this soap for the fledgling Channel 4. It was produced by his company, Mersey Television, and it was filmed in real brand new houses, specially built to be used as TV sets. So the interior shots and the exterior shots were all of the same building, which is very rare. That's very rare, yeah. And it was originally intended to be a super realistic depiction of life in Liverpool in the 1980s. Some of the classic early characters were the trade unionist Bobby Grant and his wife Sheila. Played by Sue Johnson and Ricky Tomlinson. Yeah, who went on to play a married couple again, of course, in the royal family. Absolutely. So they had a couple of kids, one of whom was Barry Grant, who ended up becoming a very important character in his own right. They'd moved from a council estate and they'd gone to this more middle-class area of Liverpool. Contrasting with that, there was the Collins family who were falling down the social ladder. They'd moved from the Wirral and had slightly more Tory views. Interestingly, at first the characters would swear. Swear? What does that mean? Use expletives or bad language. Oh, you mean swear? Yes, I mean swear, Blurt. There were questions asked in the House of Commons about how suitable this was on British television. So it went out at 8 o'clock in the evening, I think. 
Yeah, I don't think it was massively strong swear words, but certainly people were being called, you know, dickhead. I mean, that's not really swearing. They may even have gone slightly stronger than that, but it's definitely in Hansard that this language was considered inappropriate. Well, I suppose you wouldn't have said dickhead on TV back then. So for the purposes of questions in the house, dickhead would count as swearing. Yeah, you weren't going to have dickhead in Jack and Ori or Blue Peter, were you? Don't be Blue Peter. (laughs) (laughs) And then in the 1990s, Brookside had this huge storyline, and this is probably what changed the soap forever, where the wife beater and child abuser Trevor Jordash was murdered by his wife Mandy. Yes. I shouldn't say murdered really, I mean perhaps killed is more appropriate because there was certainly a lot of provocation from Trevor. Mandy and her daughter Beth and their family friend Sinbad then buried Trevor under the patio. Ah, the famous patio burial plot. For years later, if you ever had a new patio installed, people would say, are you burying a body underneath it? I mean, it entered the shared consciousness. Well, it was a huge storyline, and yes, it became part of the national conversation. I think that's right. Even to this day, you'll hear people say, oh, my husband's being really annoying. I'm going to bury him under the patio. Yeah, you do. And then they followed that up with another hugely successful storyline, again with Beth Jordash, where she enjoyed the first pre-Watershed lesbian kiss on British TV, which was also a huge attention-grabbing and phenomenally successful storyline. And that was in 1994, which, when you think about it, that is very late on. I mean, it just shows, thankfully, how we've moved on. Yeah, it's incredible how buttoned up we were as a society, even as relatively recently as that. And of course, in 94, Section 28 still existed. It was Tony Blair's government that got rid of that hateful piece of legislation. Yeah, these depictions of gay storylines, we'll hear more about that when we talk about EastEnders. They were important in helping to break down these taboos. Absolutely. So after the body under the patio and the lesbian kiss, Brookside, having seen these big spikes in the viewership, possibly got a bit overexcited about chasing the sensationalist storylines. It seemed to me that there was a hostage situation every other week. But that's just normal in Liverpool, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, I lived in a close that looked a bit like Brookside Close, and there were definitely some strange characters some strange goings on but no I mean on Brookside they had a religious cult that blew up one of the houses right that didn't happen on my street there was a killer virus which meant that all the residents had to be quarantined inside their homes well that's just not realistic that would never happen never happen in real life And then there was an incest storyline for which Channel 4 was forced to apologise and even Phil Redman said we got it wrong. So there was this point at which they just tipped a bit too far into chasing sensationalist storylines. And that incest storyline, it wasn't implied. They actually showed the brother and sister in bed together. Yeah, they did. And a lot of people found it very distasteful. Ratings declined, not necessarily as a result of that storyline, but I think there was just a general sense of the show becoming increasingly absurd. Eventually, Channel 4 shunted it. So it had been shown three nights a week at about 8pm with an omnibus on a Saturday afternoon. Channel 4 stopped showing the weeknight shows. So now it was just down to that 90-minute slot on a Saturday afternoon with a significantly reduced budget. And then they shifted that again to very late night on Tuesdays. It would start at 11pm on a Tuesday and last for 90 minutes. I mean, who's going to watch that? Well, it turns out nobody. So the show ultimately died. And the final storyline was the close being scheduled for demolition and all of the characters moving out. And it has one last shock storyline where the residents ganged up to lynch a drug dealer who had recently moved into the close and was making their lives a misery. Yeah, this was the Jack Michelson storyline. Yeah. There were a few problems with it. One of which was, why was somebody new moving into the close at that point when it was about to be demolished anyway? 
point they just brought this storyline in sort of out of nowhere. But of course, it wasn't any old neighbour. No, they gave him the name Jack Michelson as a play on Michael Jackson, not the one-gloved pop star, but the controller of Channel 4 at the time and the person responsible for axing the programme. And that scene of Jack Michelson hanging, I mean, they do actually show the body hanging from the window. It's quite graphic. It was a bit much. They had Barry Grant coming back and he didn't take part in the lynching. But I think he, with a nod and a wink, advised them that that would be the thing to do. It was very dark, too dark, really, and probably spoke to the rot that had set in at the heart of the programme at that point. But at its peak, and I think its peak was just before the body under the patio storyline, I do think it was a really good show with some really good characters. Barry Grant, who ultimately became a gangster character, is one of my favourite soap characters of all time. But along with his mate Terry, they clearly inspired Harry Enfield. He's finished with me and it's all his fault. Hey, Tracy, she's finished with me and it's all his fault, Terry. Fuck, she's got rid of the baby and he's behind it every step of the way. Who? Billy! Billy Corkill, that's him! All right, all right, calm down. Calm down! I should have sorted it out last Christmas. I should have done it then. Oh, did you drag me out of bed to tell me that? What? Ew! Billy Corkill! That is just classic scales. But did you hear the fuck in there? It's very subtle. No, what? Fuck, she's got rid of the baby. It does sound like he might be saying, fuck, she got rid of the baby. Yeah, it's barely noticeable, though. Do you think they left it in deliberately? I mean, maybe it was just a sort of verbal tick of the actor playing the part. I mean, I guess, yeah, maybe this just got past them in the edit. I guess. Some reinforcing of Scouse stereotypes going on in that clip, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a bit. But while we're hearing mention of Billy Corkill, I'd like to mention Jimmy Corkill, who was also a really good character. He would alternate between being a burglar, a drug addict, a lovable fool, a reckless idiot, and sometimes an honest sage. Sometimes they tried to make Jimmy the moral centre of the message that they were trying to get across, occasionally in a rather heavy-handed way. But a good example of that is this closing monologue from the final episode. In telly's just for your kids who buy stuff from the adverts in between, isn't it? Hey, that's what your telly is. So the politicos think that they have to soundbite to a bunch of snotty-nosed kids who only experience a life of Quarantino movies and what some daft brat from a reality show tells them. I can remember when the telly meant something. You know, you watch the documentary, you watch the drama, and it made you think about life, you know. And not whether you had the right wallpaper to match your kecks. I mean, what's all that about? And newspapers, they were about what was going on in the world, you know. Not what was going on in the back of some limo or some trendy bar in London. See, these days, it's all about lifestyles, isn't it? You know, not values. We're heading for meltdown, because the people at the top, you know, are totally out of touch with those at the bottom. They've just lost it. They just don't understand how to do it anymore. Thinking that their mates in the media can do it for them. You know, they've just... Well, they're just totally isolated in their glass offices in London. Channel 4's glass office in London is very nice. I mean, the whole thing is a rather broad swipe at everything that Redmond thought was wrong with media and politics at the time. And he was drawing a link between cancelling Brookside and all these social woes. I don't think the point is very effectively made. In particular, it talks about reality TV. Clearly, they were cocking a snoot at Big Brother, which was the big one of the time. It was also on Channel 4 and sometimes taking the slots that had previously been Brookside's slots. That was definitely the feeling at the time. You know, Brookside is on the way out and it has been replaced by Big 
brother. Yeah, but it's a bit ironic, I think, to have a soap character criticising reality TV because 20 years before that, it was the genre of soap itself that was considered lowbrow and uncouth. And now that baton had passed to reality TV. But tastes change, times come and go, shows don't last forever, and sometimes they just have to bow out gracefully. Yeah, very true. And obviously that monologue was, what, 2002, so 20 years ago. And, you know, you now see in the move to streaming that some genres do really well, such as high-end drama, but soaps are losing out. Yeah, how are soaps going to survive in the streaming age is interesting. I mean, we've seen Amazon have picked up Neighbours, so I guess there is some hope for soap in the new way of distributing TV. Your pitches are making me nostalgic for soaps, and I'm thinking I would like to watch some again. But fundamentally, I'm not going to spend three hours every week watching just a single series. Maybe somebody will do something interesting with that. I mean, we think of soaps as belonging in particular parts of the evening on particular nights of the week, and maybe we need to move beyond that and somehow make them more bite-sized and sort of bingeable. I don't know, what's the equivalent of soap opera on TikTok? I have no idea. (laughs) When we sound like old men now, but I think there's enough in the form of soap. People are going to want to watch relatable stories about a place that looks vaguely similar to somewhere they might recognise and also has those sensational twists. It's just going to be about putting it in the right format for modern lifestyles, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Jimmy Corkill being the vehicle for that monologue was quite telling about how Brookside would do things. Most of the other soap operas are driven by character first and plot second. Brookside is always plot, 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 and then the characters can become whatever you need them to become in order to serve the plot. Jimmy Corkill there was doing that monologue and previously we'd seen him doing criminal acts and very bad things and then you had to switch him around to being the moral centre of the show. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's quite clever how they pitched the Jimmy Corkill character because, you know, as you say, he was doing some pretty bad shit, but they did manage to keep him lovable. Yeah, and that was probably testament to the skills of the actor as well. Yeah. Going back to that Barry and Terry clip, those characters calm down, calm down, and then obviously what Harry Anfield did parodying that did contribute to negative stereotypes about the city of Liverpool and its people. And you know, I'm not oversensitive to that. I don't mind people taking the piss out of the region I come from, and we all take the mickey out of each other about things like that all the time, and it's just fun. But it's certainly true that Brookside and also that unspeakable piece of effluent bread contributed to these negative stereotypes. Bread was awful. Yeah, it was terrible. I presume when you watched Brookside at home with the family, you were sitting there in your trackies, eating a bowl of scouse. Yeah. Making sure that the hubcaps hadn't been nicked. I don't mind a tracksuit or a bowl of scouse. I've never had my hubcaps nicked, though, I have to say. But anyway, I'm here to defend and promote Brookside for the moment. So while I have some beef with those negative stereotypes of the region, at its best, I would say Brookside was an electrifying show with its finger firmly on the pulse. It's a very compelling argument. One thing I do want to talk about with Brookside is the music. So first of all, the theme tune is rubbish. You don't like the theme tune? I think it's terrible. But there was also other music in the show. And interestingly, I think what was going on was Mersey Television had come up with quite a clever way of making use of the music rights rules. You know, there's a thing called PRS in this country where if you play recorded music in any venue or on a TV show, you have to pay royalties to the people who own the rights. Yeah, absolutely. In Brookside, in the background, in pubs, in bars, and the hairdressers there was always the same rotation of songs and they were not popular songs of the day they were not songs you would know from any context outside of Brookside and I can only assume it was because Mersey Television had done a deal on the performance and publishing rights of those songs very cunning for similar reasons whenever a character was watching TV there was always a fake television show on called Magic Rabbits Magic Rabbits 
Yeah, it was these two glove puppets of rabbits and this incredibly irritating, repetitive piece of music. It's really stuck with me. So it was just that tune over and over again, and this was always on the TVs. I could see it stuck with you. <laughs> Did the rabbits do different things at different times of day? Hopping around happy when the kids are watching, but in the evening doing, you know, what rabbits do. Sexy bunnies. Yeah, well, we've gone from dead bodies under the patio to sexy rabbits, and that's my picture, Rookside. What can I say? I was not expecting that transition. I think it's probably time we move on to your final pitch. What is your final pitch? Finally, I'm going to pitch you EastEnders. Okay. You were talking about how in the 1990s the BBC felt the need to launch Eldorado because of viewer ratings concerns. Yeah. In the mid-1980s, I guess there was a similar situation. And at this point, the government was reviewing its funding arrangements. It was the Thatcher government and the Peacock Committee had been established. Peacock being a major review into the financing of the BBC. Thatcher expected it to recommend the scrapping of the licence fee, but it didn't. Yeah. Nonetheless, the BBC was under a lot of pressure to become more popular, and it was looking enviously at Coronation Street. So the BBC thought, we need our own twice-weekly soap. What's your view on that, by the way? Do you think it's right for the BBC to try to chase ratings because it has to provide something for everyone? Or do you think because it's in the privileged position of having the licence fee, it should be providing programmes that the commercial sector wouldn't or couldn't? I think everybody pays the licence fee, and the whole basis on which the BBC is able to exist is that it offers something for everyone. And, you know, you look at countries where licence fees have been cut right back, and you inevitably get the ghettoising of public service broadcasting, because nobody then watches the channel. There's a balance to be had, and, you know, you could argue BBC One is the most popular channel in the country, maybe they've gone too far, but you could also argue it's about right, and, and yeah, generally speaking, I'd say I think it is about right. Yeah, I think I would probably agree. So having decided that they wanted their own twice-weekly soap, the BBC gave birth to EastEnders. And it's notable, I think, that it took some cues from Corrie, in particular, the emphasis on the matriarchy. There were always strong female characters. Yeah. Pauline Fowler, Doc Cotton, Angie Watts. A little bit later than that, there was Pat Butcher and Peggy Mitchell. But as well as borrowing that from Coronation Street, it also borrowed some of Brookside's darkness. EastEnders opened with a murder mystery with the question of who killed Reg Cox. Oh, that was the question I was going to ask in the quiz. Oh, right. Well, who killed him? It was Nick Cotton, probably Soap's greatest villain. Yes. But I think where EastEnders was really strong was, as well as having those iconic female characters like Corrie has, it also had really memorable and iconic male characters, many of them a bit dodgy. Den Watts, Grant and Phil Mitchell, Frank Butcher, Alfie Moon. And also, you know, you can't deny that EastEnders had some extremely potent and important storylines. It had the first gay kiss on a UK soap. That was Colin, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. And then there was Mark Fowler's HIV status, which for a lot of us is probably where we learnt a lot of the facts about HIV. And he had what Brass Eye would call good AIDS, didn't he? Yeah, he was heterosexual and he didn't use intravenous drugs. So EastEnders were presenting us with a character with HIV who didn't fall into the stereotypes that were around that time of, of who got HIV and, and how it was transmitted. Some people have made the argument that in doing that, the BBC soft-soaped the issue a little bit because although anybody could catch HIV, there were more people from the gay community who were suffering with that disease at the time. And so was this really a, a representation of the, the typical person who was suffering? 
think. But I think the fact that they showed that anyone could get it was very important. It was an important part of reducing the stigma around HIV, I, I would agree. Um, and yeah. there are arguments to be made both ways, I would say. I mean, if you'd look at It's a Sin recently, which was a really good drama. Yeah, incredible drama. And that focused on realistic cases of the early days of HIV and what it felt like for people who were suffering it. Whereas the Mark Fowler storyline was a less common case in real life. But as you say, it did help to bring the issues to wider public recognition. And therefore, I think on balance, it was the right thing to do. Sure. There was also the storyline around Ethel's euthanasia. Oh, I mean, that was so moving. Ethel begging her best friend Dot to help her die because she was suffering from a brain tumour. Dot wrestling with her conscience as it went against her Christian beliefs, but ultimately deciding that helping her best friend die was the kindest thing to do. And that final scene just brings you to tears. It was acted so well. Both of those lead actors were superb. Do you remember the episode where it is just Dot for the entire half hour and she's reminiscing as she records a message for her husband, Jim, who is in hospital recovering from a stroke? Oh, yeah. In real life, the actor who played Jim, John Barden, had to leave the soap because he was suffering from a stroke. So it was poignant to all the cast and crew. Oh, wow. And we mentioned Tony Jordan in relation to El Dorado. He was EastEnders' star writer. And he wrote that episode. And June Brown, incredible how she pulled it off. Incredible performance, incredible writing, but also incredible that a channel would be that brave to trust their talent so much to let them do it. It is extraordinary. I think they realised that in June Brown they had an incredible talent and they wanted to make sure they'd fulfilled the potential of what that actor could do with that character. Yeah. But yeah, it was a phenomenal piece of television. Absolutely. Then there was Kat Slater being sexually abused by her uncle and also having had a daughter who was raised as her sister. You're not my mother. Yes, I am. There was Little Mo with her abusive husband. Lots of very hard-hitting and very affecting and very moving storylines over the years. I've just brushed over the surface of them there. There have been many, many more. They had a lot of hard-hitting storylines. One of the most famous storylines, though, is the Den and Angie divorce. Yeah, that was huge. Christmas Day episode, all that came to a head. Yeah, 1986. What was the viewing figures on that? It was enormous. 30 million people. Absolutely incredible. It's up there with Royal Weddings and Football World Cup finals. People of a certain age will put that up there with Del Boy falling through the bar on Only Fields and Horses as the classic TV moments that they'll always remember. Absolutely. It'd been building up for some time, that storyline, hadn't it? It had. Dan had had an affair and he was thinking of leaving Ange, but she pretended to have a terminal disease. Exactly. They went off on holiday on the Orient Express and Angie was in the bar chatting to the barman and she thinks Den's back in the cabin. But actually, he's sitting in the corner listening to this entire conversation where Ange tells the barman she's told this big lie, not a little white lie, and that's stuck in my memory as I think it's the first time I'd ever heard the phrase white lie. But all you thought was, how's Den going to react? And he didn't say a word. And this went on for months until Christmas Day, he confronts her. This, my sweet, is a letter from my solicitor telling you that your husband has filed a petition for divorce. It also tells you to get yourself a solicitor pretty damn quick. Happy Christmas, eh? Classic moments. And obviously, there were many, many more. But I would like to say EastEnders leaned too hard into gangster storylines sometimes, especially around the early 2000s. 
Sometimes then it was like an unfunny Guy Ritchie movie or an extremely cheap Sopranos. I suppose it's a very easy trope for EastEnders to fall into. They used to talk about The Firm, didn't they? So it's a capital T, capital F. When Den got wrapped up in organised crime, it was The Firm that he got involved with and then he was ultimately shot. Shot by a bunch of daffodils. Yeah, although later it turned out he mysteriously survived. But the fact that they called it The Firm and the fact that you had these recurring tropes like there's a couple of dodgy brothers or there's a couple of sisters, but one of those sisters is called Ronnie. It's like there's this really strong implication that The Firm is the craze empire continuing into the present day and fictionalised into that suburb of London. It's all just a bit on the nose. There was a time, I think it would have been around 2003, when it seemed like every male character was either a hitman or a former or current gangster. Yeah. There was Dennis Rickman, who was the illegitimate son of Dirty Dan. He'd been raised as an enforcer by the firm that killed his father. There was Jake and Danny Moon. They were Alfie Moon's cousins, but they were also like dodgy gangster types. If I wanted to watch a gangster drama, you know, I'd go and watch something directed by Martin Scorsese. Not something that's been made for TV pre-Watershed. Exactly. It's fine to have a bit of spice and danger in there, but from time to time, they just lent too hard into it. But one thing I do think they pioneered in British Soap was the use of well-known actors. Yeah, a fair few people have gone through. Quite early on, you had Mike Reed. And obviously Wendy Richard making the transition from sitcom to soap. Yeah, and then just a little bit later, there was Barbara Windsor. Yeah. Then later than that, there was Martin Kemp, Shane Ritchie. We've had Danny Dyer in recent years. Whereas I think previously the received wisdom was that viewers wouldn't accept established stars coming in as soap characters, but these days it's become quite common. Coronation Street's had Kim Marsh and Craig Charles. EastEnders seem to be the origin of all that. People can distinguish the difference. When you watch Peggy Mitchell, you don't think, oh, that's Barbara Windsor. She got her tits out on Carry On Camping. Peggy Mitchell and Barbara Windsor are both British icons that you can hold in your head quite separately from each other, which is amazing, really. Yeah, totally. Speaking of her, let's listen to the greatest bit of EastEnders ever, in my opinion. This is a clip which sums up every single thing you need to know about the show. You've always looked down your nose at me, haven't you? You sneered at my sons and my daughter. You think you're so superior, don't you? Your husband was a thief, your son's got HIV, and the whole lot of you are a pack of liars! Look down my nose at you, you bet I do. Look at him, the last mangy stray from your pack. No wonder Lisa didn't want him for the baby's father. No wonder she wanted someone to be caring and look after her. She stole his daughter. She was protecting Louise. With a father like that, what chance in life would you have? The only thing you can say about Phil Mitchell is it's a miracle nobody shot him sooner. Get out, you! Don't you start on me! I said get out, you cheap crocs! I old back! Oh, yeah? And what's this? Strawberry blonde at 70? That's real, is it? Shut up! I'm not 70! Strawberry Blonde at 70, I just think that's a fantastic line. (laughs) It's brilliant. It's the fact that it's the ultimate offensive line. Yeah, and it's even worse than saying your son should have been shot sooner. (laughs) Yes. That little exchange touched on many of the big storylines that had happened over the years on EastEnders. Just have these two really strong female characters sticking up for themselves and their families, trading insults, and it's just this electrifying bit of television. So that's your pitch for EastEnders. That is my pitch for EastEnders. In fact, those are all of my pitches. Yeah, we've heard all your pitches and I'll be making my decision soon. It's going to be difficult, so to help me, I've got some questions for you to establish if you're a suitable producer of a soap opera. Go ahead. Let's start with Coronation Street. Valerie Barlow was electrocuted using what household object? Was it a hairdryer? It was a hairdryer. Then we go to Emmerdale. Which Scottish musical duo appeared on Emmerdale as part of a music festival held at Home Farm? 
Well, I don't know this, but at an educated guess, I'm going to say the Proclaimers. Correct. So that's two for two. You're doing well. Let's go to Brookside. And we talked about the body under the patio. But later on, Sinbad had to recover something from Trevor's body after his sister Brina requested it as a keepsake. What did Sinbad have to retrieve? Was it a wedding ring? It's a signet ring. Oh. I think that's pretty good. Okay, you'll allow that. Yeah. And finally, EastEnders. Which brewery owned the Queen Vic before the Mitchells? Now, let me think. Coronation Street, Rover's Return, Newton and Ridley. Yep. But the Queen Vic Brewery, um, I'll know when you tell me, but I'm not going to get it. Luxford and Copley. Oh, well, I didn't know that at all, actually. It doesn't ring any bells. No, I didn't know that either, if I'm honest. That's a very difficult question. But three out of four is a very good score. Great. I passed. Yeah. It's time for me to make my decision. If I pick Coronation Street, Emmerdale, Brookside or EastEnders, you will win the commission and televisual fame. But if I pick Eldorado, you will have to leave here in disgrace. Okay, I'm nervous. All right, Treacle, you're about to find out. I'm very convinced by a lot of your arguments, and you've definitely changed my mind a bit. Previously, I thought, Emmerdale, it's just boring, and it has that awful theme tune. It does have an awful theme tune. It just sets you up for the next half hour is going to be turgid. But then you're absolutely right to point out that some of those plots have messed with the format a bit and you know how much I like TV that screws about. Yep. Despite that, I think I still have to say no to Emmerdale because for all those weeks where there's a helicopter hitting a mirror maze, it's still fundamentally just cows in fields. (laughs) I was never greatly hoping that Emmerdale would win, so I'm happy for you to rule that out. Your other choices are all good for different reasons. Coronation Street is the show with the humour, and it's obviously beloved by many people. Yeah. If we put it into our schedule, it would do well. It would do very well. Definitely. EastEnders, it goes through phases. They all have ups and downs. But, I mean, EastEnders is currently on an extended downer. It's had some incredible plots through its history. It's the soap I've watched the most. But I think, reluctantly... I'm going to rule it out. You've shocked me there. I would have put money on EastEnders being your pick, mainly because you're such a big BBC bud. Well, there's still Eldorado in the running, which is BBC. And I think if you look at BBC One controllers in history, a few of them have made mistakes in axing shows. Famously, Michael Grade got rid of Doctor Who. It came back refreshed and has done really well. Yeah. I could undo the damage of Alan Yentop axing Eldorado and you could see a resurgence in Eldorado that's as big as Doctor Who. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's what people are calling for, isn't it? Bring back Eldorado. That's what all the people in the streets are clamouring for. It would be very popular, and I think it would fit very well into our schedule. So Eldorado is still absolutely in the running. I'm really torn with Brookside. It was such a revelation when it launched. So gritty. It was the best soap on TV at one point. Without it, you probably wouldn't have had EastEnders. But it really jumped the shark with that incest storyline. Maybe a revised Brookie could work as a weekly drama, but as a nightly soap, it's not quite right for our channel. That leaves us Coronation Street or El Dorado. I mean, that's a hard decision for anybody to make, isn't it? On the one hand, you've got the world's longest-running soap that to this day gets massive viewing figures and has always been one of the top shows in the UK. Or, on the other hand, there's Eldorado, which lasted for one year and one week, and nobody would be able to name more than 
probably two characters from it. In fact, I reckon if you could find people who could name one character, you'd be doing pretty well. I'll remind you, you're the pitcher and you shouldn't get cocky. I was going to give it to Coronation Street, but you know I'm very tempted now to give it to El Dorado, given your lip. Luke, you've got to do the right thing for the channel. See, you're making it worse for yourself. But okay, look, I will do what's right for the channel. And that is to give it to Coronation Street. So congratulations, you've won the commission. Shall we go out and celebrate? I think we should probably go out for Betty's Hot Pot and a pint of Newton Ridley's Best. Sounds good. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Cracking TV. Let us know what you think of my decision. Cracking TV was produced and presented by me, John Furlong, and him, Luke Sluman. Our rather marvellous theme tune was written and performed by Simon McInerney. Luke and John Cracking TV is an iHog factual entertainment production. It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV. Luke and John Cracking TV.